welcome to Cannon Fodder, a behind-the-scenes look at the Glass Cannon Podcast. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Cannon Fodder. My name's Joe O'Brien. And I am a very, very fat Troy LaValle. Ah, it's the post-Thanksgiving Troy. He's enormous! <laughs> I am so large! He cast a large person on himself. I've gone from a medium to a large creature. <laughs> None of my armor will fit. What's going on, buddy? You once again sound far away, and that is because we're doing it the easy way. Man, that, that cannon fodder last week was, what a revelation. We never have to hang out again. This is perfect this for is, a lot of reasons. <laughs> this is amazingly perfect. Uh, and it just it sounded pretty good, so we were like, hey, let's do it again. Uh, no, really, we don't love doing this, but uh, we, we couldn't get together this week, so we, we have to do the remote hopefully one more time, and this will be it for a while. We don't want to get into the habit, but... No, it's a bad habit. We expect more from ourselves, but... We also want to give you an episode, so <laughs> yes. this is our only option. <laughs> well, welcome. And this is the 25th cannon fodder, Joe. This is it's, it's episode 25, and we know what happens on uh, on multiples of 25 with our Joe's show. Joe's not going to make it through this cannon <laughs> looks fodder. Like, looks <laughs> like I'm going to die this week. Well, there's a good chance I could have a gravy heart attack, though. <laughs> Maybe uh, that'll be the twist. I die. Oh my God! I I just need to I need to eat more vegetables. I have to. I have to, <laughs> Troy. All of this cheese intake has to stop. You have a lot of cheese at Thanksgiving. Only in Philadelphia do you have cheese at Thanksgiving. Well, cheese and pepperoni, man. How else do you uh, How else do you get disgustingly full before dinner starts? <laughs> I have to stop laughing. It's actually hurting my heart. <laughs> just every time I laugh, I'm like, oh. it's normal for your left arm to go numb when you laugh, right? <laughs> Well, we are back for another week of recapping and looking a little behind the scenes at the Glass Cannon Podcast. This week, episode 79, mm. the, uh, the, the fight with Iwiga, who yes. we, got, we got teased at the end of episode 78 that she was back. And then uh, this week we go in and we start fighting. And I don't want to say I didn't know what to expect. I mean, we already know some of her abilities. We did know that she would level up. We knew that she was going to be a druid. But I certainly didn't expect a couple bears. But it sounds like... You were a little bit frustrated, I think, that she wasn't maybe as effective as you wanted her to be. Well, uh, I guess you could say frustrated. It's just when you when you when you have a cool enemy like that, especially returning now stronger. And I leveled her up myself. I added a couple more levels of druid, uh, so she could get access to some higher level spells. I just really wanted you got one person to fail a uh, save. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> just to see like Umlo get burned alive in his armor or. <laughs> Della to have fungal spores grown on her skin. That would have been amazing. You know, I was thinking after the fact, I was thinking after the fact because she had that extended metamagic rod thing and what she had done to Galabras before. I was thinking if that had come out against Willamette, he might have had some uh, some bad juju on Uskroth's armor because he had just gotten it. Like literally, right. literally minutes before. Now, would he have been wise enough to think, oh, hey, well, I mean, it doesn't matter what armor I'm in. That's always going to happen. But I don't know. It might have put a bad taste in your mouth. You put it on, and then five minutes later, you're burning alive in it. <laughs> like, right. I could see Baron coming and be like, give me that back. This is cursed. <laughs> no one will wear it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, there were, you know, we passed a lot of those saves, which was lucky. And all in all, it wasn't a particularly deadly combat. I mean, nobody really, I don't think anybody went unconscious, right? And there was no... No, I mean, Nestor was in trouble there when that bear grappled him and then maintained the grapple. And he, first the bear crit, then it maintained the grapple, 
Then it did, uh, you know, on the maintain the grapple, it did even more damage. So Nestor was hurting, you know what I mean? You take a a ranged character, you take away his ranged ability and have him in a situation that he can't break out of because his strength is so low. I mean, he was in trouble. And Willamette, that, uh, you know, it went well because you have good friends that came and helped you. But, I mean, this thing came up, hit you. Ripped you off of Lexington. I mean, that could yeah, have definitely was, ended badly. Willamette was certainly completely ineffective. I mean, you, you rendered him totally ineffective in that combat. Really, the only thing I believe he did was get off a channel and do a little bit of healing. Three points uh, th- of healing. Yeah, three three <laughs> points of healing. Uh, so he was... And, and I just want to point out that this is something you had talked about when you discussed the possible changes you might have made to the Lockmore Ettergun fight by adding some creatures in. And you said what a difference it can make to add a couple creatures into a boss fight instead of the boss being outnumbered six to one. You really change things when you throw a, a few more creatures into the equation coming in from different angles. Well, I think this fight is a perfect example of that. I don't think Owiga gets out of there nearly as uh, as or, or would have stayed alive nearly as long if you hadn't completely taken Will out of the fight with one bear and taken Nestor out of the fight with the other bear. And that was that was pretty awesome uh, in terms of making it feel stressful for us as players. I can tell you at the table, we were not thinking it was going to end up you know as easy as... And not that it ended up easy, but that we would all live through it. I mean, we definitely... Well, I think we even said at one point that we if we had not properly rested before coming out... I mean, that was a TPK. Right, and then you were like, well, it's still going to be a TVK. <laughs> like, yeah, but <laughs> now I? it's not guaranteed to be a TVK. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, li- I added the bears in just because I, I didn't think a Wigga, even leveled up alone, would be able to really challenge you guys unless I made the encounter super annoying, i.e. like lots of invisibility and moving position and stuff like that. You know, I, I did that already. I wanted this to be a different fight. And Yeah, uh, I mean, the first time we fought a Wigga, she had no uh, ads, for lack of a better term. You know, no other allies with her. Right. So this was, this did change the landscape of the fight greatly. And I just didn't know what to do. I mean, what do you do in that situation? Think as a player for a second. I kept saying I'm going to try to break a grapple, fully knowing as a player that I needed a natural 20 to break out of the grapple. Like, halflings have no CMB to speak of because they're just so small. They don't have the strength that's required to get out of right. situations like that. But w- what else are you going to do? I, you know, I didn't have a light weapon. I mean, you are, you preach uh, the school of like, always think of something clever, always think of something, you know, different to, to, to get out of a situation. There's always something that you can do to bring something interesting to the table. And I appreciate that. Could you, can you think of anything that Will could have done in that situation besides just struggling to get away each round? I just didn't know what else to do. Yeah, it's, that's a good question. I mean, I definitely would uh, invest some points in escape artists because even if you don't have the strength to break out, you can always use escape artists. That's um, true. And he does have a little bit of dex. I, well, actually, I think his dex is 10, but, you know, it's not a penalty at least. Right. Um, I mean, that's a good thing that if, if you're not building an, a strength-based character, you definitely, even if it's not a class skill for you, just toss some points into escape artists. You know, I it's never. It's an invaluable skill. I never put any points in escape artists unless I'm a rogue. That's really? A, yeah, that's a good point. If you don't have a good CMB, that's a good thing to put a couple points into. So that at least you can attempt to get out of those kind of situations. For sure. Um, yeah. I think there are certain spells you could use in that sense. Not you, but other people could use where people don't... I don't think they ever think to take these spells. It's spells that do damage to you, but if you're ever grappled, could hurt the person grappling you. I, I don't know. That's why I like thinking outside the box for characters where you can do things that may may seem like why I don't ever want to hurt myself hit points are precious but it's going to come in handy at some point and in this case that would have come handy but I don't even know if that spell exists it's like a sacrifice bunt 
Right. <laughs> <laughs> like you're giving up and out, but hey, you know, you got to exactly. give give something for the team. It's small um, ball. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's small ball. But yeah, so it did. It locked us up a little bit. It created that tension, that stress. I mean, Baron, I think, really steps out as the hero in this one. Ta- he takes out a bear, takes sure. out a Wigga. Um, massive amounts of damage uh, with that gun. But he also, you know, he pretty much needs to be within 20 feet to be as effective as he can be. So when you spread the field like that, he can only handle one thing at a time. He can't spread his shots out between these targets. So he had to focus on the bear and then move and focus on a wigga. And just the time that it took for that to happen, it got really dangerous for Della. You know, and if she had failed that save, what was that moss skin thing? The fungal? What was that? That sounded so horrible. Horrible. Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, it was you know it's a third level druid spell, and if you fail, I mean it's for especially for Della who it does charisma it does charisma damage it does charisma damage, and Sir Will is the uh, the one that's always praising her beauty, <laughs> and like you bu- you build these spores on your skin so that every time you get hit they burst and you take bleed damage every time you get attacked. That's what it was on top of the regular damage being done to you. So I'm, it's a pretty brutal spell, and I don't think you guys had the capabilities to heal it for a while. Not like Galabras level difficult, but uh, I don't I don't know if uh, lesser restoration would have been enough. Huh? Really really scary stuff and it's so interesting too because that that's one of the things i love about the druid spell list i mean as you know i played a, a druid through till about sixth level and they are really fun characters with their because their spell list is is different from the other ones and it's specifically because they're all like that like uh, their spells are almost all revolve around manipulating or using nature or the natural world in some way so that sort of horrific like a uh, persistent nasty uh, affliction spell is going to be something like moss or fungus growing out of you uh it's just really really neat and i think that a really evil druid is a very scary disturbing thing because you're bringing out like think about the the horrors in the middle of the amazon you know what i mean like that's right. what you're bringing to bear on on your enemies and that's very 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 frightening but you know uh last week on cannon fodder Skid had discussed, you know, he's like, I, I could, he couldn't believe he, he didn't see a wig coming because it's one of the things he loves to do is bring villains back. I just want to reiterate, like, how important it is to recognize when is a good time as a GM to just get a villain out of there instead of dying, instead of fighting to the death. Like, there are some times when, uh, you know, they're, a certain villain, villain is valiant enough and willing to die for their cause, but there are more times than not, especially when you're fighting, like, chaotic evil creatures, that they will save themselves more than anything else. And so don't be afraid to just get them out of there, if you can get them out of there. And it just opens up this whole landscape of options for you, which could turn out to be something like we saw this week, which was just really fun for us as players to, to fight a repeat villain you know it'd be cool too if you're fighting someone that pretty obviously has a very powerful magical weapon that you're salivating over as a player that you just want to kill like have that person escape and never come back <laughs> <laughs> so they, they never get the magical item this has been evil dm tricks with <laughs> troy lavalley Oh, By the way, that spell was called Fungal Infestation, and uh, it, it wasn't as hard to heal as I thought. You take 1d3 points of charisma damage, so that would heal naturally over time. But that, uh, you know, in the, for the number of days that it takes to heal that, if you don't have restoration available, I mean, you're going to take bleed, bleed damage every single time you get hit. 
Yeah, so. that's brutal. And it's the kind of thing where you really want to focus as a GM and target your uh, your paladins, your sorcerers, you know, mm-hmm. the people where charisma is really going to hit hard. Yeah. Um, and they're not always in the front line, so it can be tough to do, but it is you don't want to just waste that on somebody who doesn't care about charisma. It won't hold the same potency. But right. Like did, now Della is not a, a huge charisma character, but story-wise that affects Della. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, certainly the way she's perceived by other people. Um, so yeah, I wish, I wish it had happened. <laughs> there was one other thing I wanted to ask you before we got to listener mail, which was there was a, a moment where, um, where Della very coolly, cast true strike on herself and then tripped the bear that was grappling Willamette and they they tumble to the ground so ridiculous yeah so ridiculous <laughs> so she rolls this against you know a, a four-limbed animal that then goes to she takes the penalty still gets through it will and uh, and bear go to the ground and then at that point we're back where we had discussed uh, you know what was it four weeks ago on cannon fodder about uh, you know, resolving the GM's imagination of the situation versus the player's imagination of the situation. And we already discussed that. But what I'd like to talk about now, I want to ask you if this has ever happened to you as a GM. Has has a player uh, ever aggressively, to a certain extent, argued with you about what one of your creatures would do in a situation? Like where you say, okay, they do this. And, and the player says, they, they would not do that. If they saw me standing there with my blah, 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 they would go attack that other person. Has this ever happened to you where you have to debate a player about what a, a creature you're controlling is going to do in a given round? I mean, uh, no, because I don't debate. My word is law. <laughs> uh, but no, Emperor I think this has even happened on the GCP. Like a creature would never do that. Don't tell me what my creature would do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'll listen, obviously, if they're like, oh, there's no way they would do that. I'll, I'll be like, all right, well, it does sound – if it is a complicated maneuver, I'll look at the sheet and I'll be like, okay, intelligence of two. Uh, yeah, maybe that is too much of a, a thing for it to have been able to thought out. But a lot of these creatures, even if their intelligence is low, they have instincts. You know what I mean? They have right. the, the instinct to want to do things. If it's overly complicated, yeah, maybe I'll listen. But otherwise, don't worry about your characters and I'll worry about the – 15 that I'm controlling. Yeah, you know, the, the thing that made me think of it was the, you know, the bear getting tripped down and then you spent a whole round of the bear just like kind of getting up and provoking multiple attacks. You right. know, if you were going to play it as strategically as possible or really just try to take Willamette out, you could have just kept doing damage to him on the ground and not, you know, been phased by the trip. But you were Yeah, tra- you're the one that led me to uh, release the grapple and stand up. Exactly. You suggested that. Exactly. Uh, but it made, it made sense because I was sitting there thinking about what the bear would do. I was getting in the in the mind of the bear, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I guess he would just let him go and stand up. And you're like, well, you just let him go and stand up. I'm like, all right, you're right. <laughs> but yeah, the, the same thing has happened to me before, and it does get annoying. It, get, it gets bothersome when a player is going to tell you like, oh, they didn't see me do that, or they wouldn't know that I do this, or so they wouldn't do that. They wouldn't come around that corner right then. They would probably go for the per- person that's e- right in front of their face, easiest to see, whatever. And I have my reasons for going after this other character. It right. can be frustrating as a GM, but you know there is, I-, I think you're right that you have to listen, you know, hear it out. And but you don't want to get you don't want to invite too much debate on the topic. You don't want to debate no. your side of why the character is going to do that. You're just going to listen and say, all right, well he's going to do this anyway. And right. it, you know it can get tough. Like players can get really frustrated and and it can get a little tense. But I think that you have to establish early on a you know mo as a GM that you will not get into extended debate. You will listen, but then you will make your decision. 
and 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 that's it. And that's going to be how it how it goes. Yes, it's tough. You don't want to be like, oh, I'm the big power play GM. I assert my will against my players. That's not really it. But it really is more a factor of players that are not trusting you. That that that's where the problem lies, not with you. But it is a delicate situation and tough to handle. And I'm not going to claim to know how to do it. But I've just dealt with it in the past, and it is it is difficult. I just wanted to bring it up because I knew I did that, and then I kind of felt bad after the session because I was like, I just need to let the GM call his shots as even when it you know is very dangerous for my character yeah you have to pick and choose your battles with the gm you know what i mean like in this case it was not that big of a deal um, right it wouldn't have been so will's death yeah it wouldn't and, have been and you're will's not death. too hard on me at least during the session so <laughs> right only uh, after only after I'll, I'll i'll allow it all right well i want to get right to the heart of the matter here because I, we got some good questions today that's right i said questions let's do this it turns out we still dance even over Google Hangouts. It's fun watching you dance in Philadelphia. <laughs> oh, man. Well, we have two questions this week, and we're not going to answer them separately. We're actually going to answer them together because they have similar themes, uh, some crossover ideas, and I think that they can bring up some really interesting conversation. I told you a little bit about this, Troy, before we started recording so that you could even prep uh, you know, some thoughts and ideas because it is a little bit complicated, but uh, I, I want to start I, off... I wasn't listening, so uh, I'm going to well, be hearing this fresh. Yeah. <laughs> no <laughs> surprise there. Uh, phoning it in, old Troy LaValle. Hey, quite literally this time. Hey! Uh, Hey-o! Uh, this question goes back for a while, and I want to just say I, I apologize to this listener for not getting on this sooner, but it's been almost two months since we got this question from Carl Custer that I really wanted to, to get on, but uh, C- Carl wrote in from Comic-Con, I believe. He said he was writing in from New York Comic-Con. It was during Comic-Con, and he said he had a question about creating new characters. Now, this is also around the time that we were going through the transition, bringing in the new characters, so I didn't want to get too far away from that before we got his question on, but his question was, normally, new parties can negotiate filling the party roles on a meta level. You lose a character, somebody says, fine, I'll play the cleric since we're going to need one. But with the recent additions and losses to the party on the GCP, are new character concepts hindering the balance of the group? How much should a player talk with the group versus the GM on negotiating a new character? That is a great question, and there are a lot of ways to attack it. But before we start answering it, I want to go to the second question, which we just got, I think, this week, which uh, points to a similar situation, and I think we can answer them both. This came from Carly, writing from Cleveland, Ohio, or Believeland, Ohio, as she said. I'm about, <laughs> uh, I'm about to run my first ever Pathfinder AP. Hey, congratulations Woo! to you, Carly. Congratulations! Woo! Guess what she's running, Troy? Rise of the Rune Lords. <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because that's what you should always run for your first AP. So they're starting in December with Rise of the Rune Lords, and she said she spent the last month researching, learning, and preparing to make this a really fun game for everyone. Carly, thank awesome. you for all your hard, hard work. Her question is, when you guys GM a new campaign, how much information do you ask players to give you about their characters? How in-depth should their backstories be at the beginning of the game? I really want to make this game immersive for them so that they can really be invested in their characters and the story. So combining the two questions, let's organize it like this. First, what are the very first steps? In the, pa- in the past, we've said the players and GM should decide between should decide on the AP together before they get started, rather than the GM just deciding the AP and telling the players what it is. 
But after that, I don't, you know, we didn't really get in too much details to what the next steps are. So why don't you tell us first, Troy, kind of what we did with Giant Slayer and how you like to kick off new campaigns in terms of the procedure? Assuming we already decided what AP we're playing. After that, what are the next steps? Right. So you've decided to run an adventure path. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. So the first thing I do is like, okay, send me, send me your character concepts. I don't like... I don't really care, but I don't like for the players to talk with each other like, what do you want to play? What do you want to play? I kind of want to just see what are you really interested in playing yourself first. And if all four of you are like, we all want to be fighters, well, then I'll be like, okay, well, so-and-so wrote me first, and they said they want to be a fighter. Uh, if you want to be a fighter too, you were the second person, you can, you can do that, but then like, you, you guys think of some other stuff. So I like to say generally what classes are you interested in playing? Don't just tell me, I want to be a rogue. Like say, well, I was thinking maybe rogue, maybe sorcerer, maybe witch. Okay, and then another guy says, well, I'm thinking sorcerer or cleric. I, I, maybe I could be the cleric, I don't know. Or, or maybe a paladin. And then after I get all that stuff, then I sort of hone it with them so that if they haven't talked to the rest of the party, the rest of the players in the group, it'll be a diverse party. But I don't... Like, you and I disagree on, on on a perfect party makeup. I'm happy with anything. Like, if there's going to be... Then why not just let four, them have four fighters? If you're yeah. happy with anything, why don't you yeah. just let them have four fighters? Because I hate fighters. <laughs> I hate them so much. What if it was four slayers? <laughs> oh, God. Uh, I would kill one the first session. <laughs> That's for sure. That's for um, sure. So I let them without. Don't tell me about backstory too much. You know, a couple sentences like, "Oh, you know, if if you've got a great idea for, uh, you know, uh, a fae sorcerer, and you've already got this concept, and the concept grabs me, then if another guy wants to be a sorcerer, it's just like, well, I was thinking sorcerer. I'll be like, okay, well, Joe has pitched me a crazy idea for a sorcerer. If you want to be a sorcerer too, that's totally fine. But I'm I'm liking what Joe's got going." Uh, and then they might be like, no, I really want to go sorcerer. Great, then we'll have two sorcerers. But it, it's it's good to have some balance in the party, but I, I really at first just want you to tell me what you're excited about playing because if we're going to be playing an adventure path that's going to last six books, I want to make sure you guys are playing something that you're really, really excited about. So you want to make sure as a GM that they have a class and a character concept that they love so that you can kill it. Exactly. <laughs> They have to be so well connected to it so that when I rip the heart out of their character, I'll also be ripping out the player's heart. <laughs> what don't you understand about that, Joe? Well, I, I think that th that is obviously a perfectly good way of doing things. And I like that the, the control that gives the GM over the whole process from the beginning, because I do think it's important for the GM to take a lot of control in the beginning in terms of fashioning what how the start of the AP is going to kick off but I do I'm I'm completely fine with players metagaming with each other to build the group like talking to each other to suss out you know who wants to do what role fine I'll play the cleric that kind of thing I'm completely fine with that as a GM I think that that's totally fine if, if players come to me with a group like a whole group already made and maybe not backstories fleshed out but they already have the ideas of what the classes are and they have discussed that with me yet I think that's that's totally fine because ultimately you're you're trying to balance what the player individual player wants but you have to remember that what all players are going to want is to be effective as a group so if they get to play their character concept but then their uh, their arcane 
wizard that they've wanted to play for a long time and never really played a wizard comes in and two other PCs also have an 18 intelligence. And so now this is the first time they've ever played a character with extensive knowledge that can do all these knowledge checks. And now everybody in the party can do knowledge checks. It kind of, that now is not as fun or as interesting of a character to play. Because I I do think that a big chunk of the interest in playing a character is being valuable to the group. You know, I think this is one of the things that Baron can really sink his teeth into is like, no one has a gun. No one even in the world has a gun. So that makes your character so unique. It makes your character stand out, which is really fun. And it can be difficult in that meta process to be the cleric as carl said in his email fine i'll play the cleric because no one else wants to that (laughs) that has fallen to all of us at one point or another the first game that i got back into with skid in new york that i was just a player in i got a guy had to leave the group i got let in and they were like you have to be a cleric (laughs) you know it's like that's that's usually the entry level for everybody you have to play the cleric and i so I went to work building a cleric that I found really interesting. And, you know, Pathfinder allows you a lot of customization with the character. So you you can do it. But I don't think that it's necessarily bad to go in with a mixed up group. You just got to make sure that the players want that, too. They want to know, like, make sure they know if you choose Sorcerer, you know, like you said, he already has a Sorcerer and he's definitely going with it. If you still want to do that, that's cool. But, you know, keeping it secret from them and then them all meeting each other at the start of the AP is also kind of interesting and fun. But you're playing with fire there. You know, you don't yeah. know if they're going to click, if the classes are going to click together and the players might be like, oh, well, Christ, if I would have known that there was going to be two druids, you know, and I everybody was going to be wild shaped the whole time. It would look like a Disney movie. Everybody's running around a bunch of animals. You know, it, it would totally change what I would have done. It, you know, it also depends on the adventure path. Like if they're if the adventure path starts off and all the PCs are old friends, then that's totally fine. But if they're all strangers meeting up, I love one of my favorite things, especially when characters have died on the show is you guys don't know what the new characters are going to be. Or like when Lork left, no one knew that you were bringing in will except me. And I love the natural reactions to that. Right. Um, And and that's something you can create from the first session. If no one knows what's going on and you're all quote unquote strangers in this case in giant slayer, that's what it was. Yeah. I think it's a little bit more, like I said, playing with fire to do that first initially at the start of the campaign. Much right. less risk doing it in the middle once the player even has a certain handle on the AP and knows the other characters in the group and you know what you're going to bring in. That said, I could say to answer Carl's question specifically about creating new characters, at least in the GCP, we did not meta game with each other at all. I didn't talk to the group about bringing in a paladin, you know, someone with healing ability. Skid never told me or any of us, like, we we need a rogue, so I'm going to build a rogue. Do you, are you guys cool with that? Do you th- Would you rather have something else? Those conversations never happened. So to answer Carl's question more specifically about us right now, bringing in new characters, I think if another character dies in two weeks from now, I expect the new character to come in without discussion with the, with the players. Yeah, I mean, that, I kind of, that's exactly how I want it. I wouldn't want it any other way. Um, when... When we started this, my my big hesitancy is when Grant said, I'm thinking gunslinger, because a lot of GMs don't allow gunslingers in their campaigns. And I had never played with one. I had read sort of the uh, the warnings against allowing a gunslinger into your party, so I was very reticent at first. And I, 
I was almost was like, eh, no. But he was so excited about it, and I was like, who am I to say no? Let's see how it happens. I've never played with a gunslinger. Maybe it'll uh, it won't be OP. Uh, I was wrong. Uh, it is completely <laughs> OP. Uh, no, but um, it, you know, I think that's why why it's fun. The other thing is uh, before I forget is. The GM knows things about the adventure path that the players don't. So that one-on-one -on -one conversation with the GM before you start allows the GM to sort of uh, hypnotically throw things into your character development that are going to resonate with the story. You know, for example, Lork, when you were building your character and choosing a deity, the deity didn't really come in until after Jason's death is when you started really thinking about, like, finding religion. And you were, I don't know if you remember, you were spitting back and forth with me via email, like, deities to follow. And you were like, I'm really leaning towards this, or maybe Gorm. I, I kind of like the idea of Gorm. And I knew about Gorm's thorn later on. And so I just wanted you to choose Gorm, and you ended up choosing it. But I was I was needling you along there so that yeah. you would choose that. And that's what's nice about having those conversations with the GM at the start is because the GM could be like, all right, what are you thinking about for uh, you know a deity? What are you thinking about in terms of the da-da-da-da? And you know that, like, 20 sessions from now, that choice that you make at character creation is going to really come home uh, when you encounter something in specifically designed in the AP. Sure. And I, I also want to say, and this is now to get more closer to Carly's question about starting a new AP and, and the level to which you build the backstory of your characters, it's really important that your players read the campaign guide, the player's campaign guide that they put out. So they do this for every AP specifically so that you can get a sense of the overall uh, image of the campaign, some of the things you'll be facing in a more general sense without spoiling anything, so that you can build a character that's going to be relevant and effective. It gives you ideas for where they can come from, what kind of background they could have in general, and what the classes, what classes are going to be most relevant. And for classes like Ranger, for example, when I was building Lork, I mean, they put right in the AP, you know, five or six suggestions for favorite enemies, so that you don't go too far down down the wrong path you know you don't want to be the favorite enemies oozes <laughs> and then like <laughs> right. you're just never going to face one but by that same token you also have to build your own backstory to an extent that it invests you personally in the campaign and you're not going to be able to build too much of a specific backstory that's relevant to the pre-written story without the gm guiding you into doing that and i think that whether you're playing a, a long AP or even a one-off, this is something that we've definitely disagreed on before in the past. And because when I have run games, I've been a little bit more demanding of you about specifics in your backstory before session one. And you have been a little more reticent to give information in terms of backstories or commit to backstory stuff before session one. You will build a, a, a general concept and then a more of a combat concept. How does this person work mechanically? And then I'll figure out the personality as we go. Whereas I want more of that earlier. Can you speak to why you think it's better to go in with less backstory and more of an open book when you're starting an AP as a character? It works well for me as a player. I, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to do it. Like I enjoy you know I'm, I'm a player in your wrath of the righteous campaign and you were hammering me before we even started on this backstory i had to write a friggin novel for you and i just that's not how i tend to play like sometimes for the first three or four sessions i'm using three or four different voices for the character i haven't even found the the voice of the character yet true and i think that's just because of my 
my acting training is just I'm I'm discovering it in rehearsals. You know what I mean? I don't know what the final product is. I've got to rehearse, and my rehearsals are the first half a dozen sessions trying to figure this out. And I don't want to commit to anything because I may discover something in the way the character is interacting with the other. Um, PCs and interacting interacting with the world that's going to shape who I think this character is. And it's also because I'm a storyteller, it allows me some leeway later on to see like, okay, this is going to be a really good story idea. And it's the GM in me too. It's just like, Joe's going to love this. If I do this, he's going to be able to really work with this. So I, I like... I like more of a blank canvas early on and discovering it through action. And you're okay with that as a GM as well, with a player that has more of a blank canvas. Just some broad strokes so that you can picture the character. But then after that, you're like, well, we'll just get started and then we can reverse engineer backstory as we go. Right. I'm happy with anything from a paragraph to a page of backstory early on. I think that that um, is more than enough because then we can fill things out on the way. Like, look at Nestor, for example, a couple intros ago, gave that amazing intro. Like, Skid may have had the the nuts and bolts of that in his head when he created Nestor, but most of that came out of a, a 14-hour writing session when he wrote that all out. It's because after, he's after he played. Ex- after he played Nestor for six sessions or something. Right. He got in the skin of Nestor and really got to see that amazing artwork. uh, And that really got him into it and and look at what he was able to do with that. So I'm fine. I don't want people to come and be like, well, I'll I'll figure it out as I go or send me a sentence. I need a little bit more than that. Where's this person from? What was his, you know, defining moment in his life that led him to a path of adventure? Or has that not happened yet? Right. And, and, And I will come at you with, you know, who is this person? Where is he from? What was his defining moment and then it's like who was there you know like what was the name of your trainer what was the name of your father well you know what i mean and you're like dude i don't know i don't give a shit let's you know let's just start the game and i steve steve the trainer right steve the trainer and then i get frustrated because i'm like well you're not taking this seriously and i think it can go both ways so i think carly for example is putting a lot of work into preparing the ap a month in advance and part of the idea behind it is i want my players to put in a lot of backstory work in advance so that they can should not only show their commitment to the game, but also so that I can take what they make and then I can write their NPCs into the story right from the beginning. Because now I have a good picture of the beginning story and I want to now tailor it to the players. Now that's a lot more work for the GM. Like I understand, Carly, that you want to do that. That's what we all want to do. But it's very difficult to do that well, especially when you're dealing separately with, say, four different PCs that are going to give you backstories that are two or three pages long, filled with characters that are named and have uh, certain you know backgrounds with them. It, putting that all into an already pre-written adventure can be done, certainly can be done. You've seen the way Troy has done it in the GCP, but that took a long time to evolve. You did not have that ready for session one. You know, you didn't have these things planned out at session one. It was like, let's get our feet wet, let's get underway, and then I can start populating it. I don't know which way is better, to be honest. This is just the idea here is to just talk it out. But I can say, personally, uh, the way I like to do it, my gut instinct is to get more information from characters and get them personally involved with their creations early in the AP 
at worst, your way of doing it forces people to really think about their characters, not just kind of send you a paragraph, the first thing they think about, and be like, here's my backstory. You know, it, it, by you constantly challenging me, for example, when I was creating uh, my character for your Wrath campaign, it, it made me really keep thinking about it. And then I was really engaged by the time we started our first session. So that's invaluable. I, I think that the most important point, and, and this is something I think people are going to disagree with both you and I, Joe, but we both agree on this. The backstory does not belong just to the player that created it. The backstory is a conversation between the GM and the player, I think. If you want and, it to and be, sometimes the other players. And, of course, it eventually becomes that as well. But it should start and, and always start and end with a conversation between the GM and the player. Especially when the GM is running a pre-written campaign. The player has to give the GM a little leeway because they know things already that are set in stone, that aren't going to change, that they can have you tailored toward ahead of time. So I, I think it is important to put that. And we've talked about this before. This is something we have never done, but we've always talked about it, is just getting together specifically and only for four or five hours to create the characters together with the GM and the other players, where the other yeah. players can chime in on your concept, and you're doing this all at once. You're splitting up the classes. You're figuring out what your party makeup's going to be. You're figuring out your backstory with the GM there, finding out what's relevant, what works, you know. I think it's a great idea, and we've never done it. And mostly that's because it's hard enough to get together that when we get together, we just want to start rolling dice. But that idea of taking the time to do that, to round that all out with all that input and everything, I think it's a great idea. I think it's the ideal thing, actually. But you also, in four hours, are not going to get that done for four PCs. I mean, how long... I, we also went through, Lork grew out of a couple different concepts, one of which was almost yeah. finished, if you remember. It was a young half-orc that was raised in a, in a tribe, basically. You know, was not even from Trunau or anything like that. And it evolved sort of into, uh, into what Lork ended up being because you were kind of working with me to be more relevant to what was at the start of the campaign. So I think there is, you know, the, it takes time. It takes many emails to get to where you need to be. But... I don't think you have to stress too, too much about having it be perfect before session one. That, no. that, that's not too important, I don't think. No, no. I, it has to be a discovery. If you're going to play, you know, I think Giant Slayer is going to take us, what, 250, 300 episodes to get through. I mean, yeah. if you're going to play all those sessions, you, want, you don't want the conversation to be over before you even start book one. <laughs> you know, it's got to be a process of discovery. And that's why I always check in with you guys from time to time. You know, what are we, uh, on episode 79, like, I still email you from time to time. Hey, give me a little more on what's going on with Della. I want to know more about Della's backstory. And then Matthew will send me something, and I'll question him on certain things like, all right, I'm not so much interested in this, that, and that. Tell me a little bit more about that. You know what I mean? Because then it gets my wheels churning and turning so that I can start incorporating more of Della into the story, yeah. or incorporating more of Willamette. You know, this happened a while back. You approached me. You're like, I feel like we need to get more of Lork's story into this. And I said, well, send me some stuff. And you sent me some stuff, and I was like, eh, I don't really, none of this is doing anything for me. Send me some more stuff. And then I was like, okay, all right, let me see if I can work with this. And then, Yeah, I, sent, I remember I sent like four ideas or concepts of things that could be involved or happening at Red Lake Fort that would be relevant to Lork's backstory or whatever. And you nixed all of them. You were like, no, none of these are going to work. And I was like, oh, God, it was like an hour of work. What the hell? 
It's down the drain. But you know, it, it got you thinking about Lork. So it's it's definitely not uh, not wasted work. And certainly we're very not. fortunate that we have a relationship where I can be like, nah, I don't like it so much. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, but the thing is, I have to realize that you know everything that's there, so you're going to have a better idea of what does and does not work. Right. And, you know, you as a player, you, you got to find that fine line between giving your GM ideas and telling your GM, like, what to do. Like, you can't be like, all right, when we go into this building, we should find my long-lost cousin that I've been talking about. I, I would be not interested. That'll you can. That's the first way to guarantee that something's not going to happen. Is in your game, me, yeah. Well, yeah. Right, if, in my game. It always has, um, you always have, it has to be inception with Troy. You always have to make him think it was his idea. That's the only way you're going to get your idea into the campaign. Right, both you and my wife have figured out this way of dealing with me, and uh, I'm going to find a way to combat it one of these days. All right, buddy, that's all I got. I think that uh, good discussion, really great to work it out with you again, because we've had, we've had this debate before, but we always are trying to figure out the best way to, to get it underway, and thank you to Carly and Carl for the questions, because I, re- I didn't even realize that until just now, that it was Carl and me Carly. Neither. Carl uh, and Carly. Thank you guys for the questions to once again get us thinking. Please keep sending us your cannon fodder questions at glasscannonpodcast at gmail.com. We are just... A few weeks away here from Christmas time and the holidays. So, you know, the holiday season is in full swing and it is exciting times. We are looking forward to getting a couple more recordings in before the season, uh, before the year is over. And I cannot wait to see what is coming next because I can't believe we're already done with the tomb. Like, I just can't believe how fast this book is moving. I, I don't know what to expect next. There's there's just... <laughs> expect the unexpected, Mr. O'Brien. <laughs> All right, buddy. Take it easy. I'll uh, see you in person next time, I hope. Well, I won't keep my fingers crossed. (laughs) See you guys.